He's really good at voiceovers. From fabulous Las Vegas, Nevada, this is Pod Therapy. Real people, real problems, and real therapists. You can submit your questions anonymously at podtherapy.net or email us at podtherapyguys at gmail.com. We have a special guest on today's show. One more poor soul who agreed to do this before discovering how terrible the show is. <laughs> and now, broadcasting from the churn, that guy's Dr. Jim Jobin. I'm Nick Tangeman. It's time for some pot therapy. The greatest testament to people's desire to see stigma go away is their willingness to talk to us at all. I know, isn't that cool? It, you deserve a medal. Yeah. Like, that's the great, like, sacrifice. This is like, oh, God, I just want to do what's right for humanity. <sighs> yeah, I I, talk to these idiots. I don't want to see stigma go away, but um, I would like to see stigmata go away. Okay, yeah, okay. That's the thing we don't talk enough That's about. Not, yeah. You know, when is somebody going to talk about addressing the stigmata? Do you know what we're talking about? Yeah, okay. yeah. The the hands, bleeding hand, bleeding things. hands. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. 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 I'm see, on board, the, and I'm with you. This is really what May is all about. Yeah, May is the month that we bring up stigmata awareness. And this is, is what... it though. <laughs> I feel like that should have its own mind. Yeah, that's right. I think September. I don't know. Yeah, nothing's September going. stigmata. There this one. So we have a special guest that uh, joined us in this episode, and we got to do a wonderful interview with the individual. And uh, you'll find that he is a pretty well-known magician. He's done a very good job in his uh, his career and his success. Um, we meet the man behind the act, though. We meet the man who just is the human being who has gone through his story. And uh, really excited that we got to meet him and that he was honest with us and told us a little bit about addiction, told us a little bit about his own mental health and and some of the co-occurring stuff. And we kind of stopped short of calling it co-occurring disorder, but that was kind of what I heard him describe. And so really, really uh, neat thing to get to do. So here's our interview uh, with John. What's John? John Van. Vanderput. Vanderput. John Vanderput. Check it out. Harvey Blackstone. Harvey, John Harvey Blackstone Vanderput. (laughs) Here it is. John, thank you so much for joining us, man. We're really excited to get to spend some time with you and and talk about uh, life and hear about some of your background story. Um, This all kind of came to be because I got to hear you once on Penn Sunday School and you were sharing about some of your history. You were sharing about some of the things you've gone through. I was being hilarious. And being very (laughs) funny. Yeah. About... Uh, about a a very unhilarious period in my life, and now I have to. I can't be. A, I can't be um, so much of a dick because uh, I'm not wearing my dragon outfit, which gives me that <laughs> superpower, social license to be <laughs> horrific to people. <laughs> yeah, it's easy to take a beating from uh, you know a giant dragon. So, yeah, man, uh, you had written a, an entire poem about uh, prescription drug abuse. Song. It was a song. Yeah, it was a song was about a prescription song. drug abuse. It was inspired yes. and wonderful. And uh... Well, I'm not <laughs> sure. I mean, I thought it was hilarious. And certainly those around me at the time thought it was uh, a cry for help. Yeah. And when I uh, look back at it and read it now, I go, oh, yeah, that's not funny at all. <laughs> Yeah, that's kind of the the kind of morbid humor that I kind of picked up on the show that day, that it was funny looking back in some ways, but also probably the guy in that period of time was going through a lot. Um, Can you tell us a little bit about what was happening in your life that kind of led to a relationship with opiates and painkillers? Yeah. Um, So I started getting sick. Um when I was in my very early twenties and, um, and 
when I went, I, I was in and out of hospital uh, and they didn't know what it was for about two years. So they were just giving me, you know, they thought it was Crohn's, they thought it was colitis, they, saw, they thought it was a bunch of stuff. So they would, um, so they would uh, just sort of like have a bash at all these things. Um, and, and meanwhile, uh, I was in um, kind of constant, uh, quite bad stomach pain. Um, so I was taking painkillers for that. And then I was taking, you know, whatever they would give me to try and figure it out. And then for the painkillers, um, you know, I sort of took every, every painkiller under the sun. And so then they would give me, you know, like cyclozine for the sickness or, um, you know, tramadol for the pain or fentanyl or, uh, or, fentanyl. or morphine or what? Oh yeah. I, yeah. And, uh, you know, I had like slow release morphine and, and all this stuff. And I just had, um, you know, I could really just ask for as much as I wanted. Hmm. Um, and the, and that, and the doctors were telling me this. Now this was in 2000 and, um, two, I think. Yeah. 2002 to 2004 or 2006, maybe 2006. Yeah. It, it was, it was four years during that period. So it wasn't like now when the opiate crisis is, um, you know, a doctor is not going to, or a, a responsible doctor is going to have a lot more concerns now. Right. So at the time they said it, there was, there was no concern from any of the medical doctors that I was talking to about this. And probably because they didn't think that I would just take, um, you know, I would start taking uh, more than they were telling me to, but there were also, and so within those responsible doctors, there were also a couple of irresponsible doctors who would say, well, you know, look, like you should take one every four hours, but if you need to, you can take more. Mm. So, you know, at one point I was taking, um, four, four pills every hour. And the dose was like one every four hours. And so, um, you know, I think like, once or twice I had to go, I had to, you know, go in for overdosing, um, and, and sort of, you know, sit in a hospital. But at the time I was in the hospital anyway, like, so it was just like most of the time I was in because my, um, my pancreas was, was, um, was giving up. So what they found out after two years was that I had uh, chronic pancreatitis um, and it was because in your pancreas, you have two tubes which drain the fluids and there's one large one and then there's uh, a very small one. And my large one uh, wasn't formed. So it had a beginning and an end, but no middle. So whenever you're a tube, that's a terrible design flaw. <laughs> uh, that's, that's two holes with, without, you know, it's useless. So everything was going out this small hole, which would then get blocked up. And your pancreas secretes, I'm not telling you this, you guys, I'm sure know this, but your pancreas secretes an enzyme which digests meat, which has a time delay on it. So if that enzyme doesn't get out quickly enough, it starts digesting your own pancreas, which causes uh, very bad pain. And then once your pancreas gets damaged, it starts sending pain because, uh, you know, pain receptors, they, um, they're actually pain. 
senders and receptors, senders and receivers, you're always, your body's always sending pain. And when your receivers get damaged, then that's when the pain gets through. So um, eventually my, my pancreas didn't know what was going on. So it was just constantly sending pain. Um, so by the end of the two years, they figured it out. And then I had two years where they were trying various, uh, various ideas to make, to get rid of it in ever increasing, um, uh, you know, severity of, of solutions. So initially they tried to put a tube uh, into the smaller hole and, um, but in the end they, um, they had to do a proper operation. Well, one question I had, so at what point, um, in this four year process, would you say that the, uh, kind of abuse of it started where you started taking it beyond what it was prescribed for? Well, I mean, uh, I mean, as soon as you take more than the recommended dose, right, right. Just a, you know, it's just a fact, but you know, I also think, um, I mean, look, I was very fortunate to come out of it. So, um, and, and, and by the time I got better, uh, I think about three months before I, um, before I had one final operation, I, I was like, okay, I've got to stop. Um, I got to stop, uh, taking all of these. Uh, all, all of this medicine because I was like doing, you know, I was like doing things like, uh, uh, like picking spiders out of my shoes with tweezers, and um, you know, I took one thing and just went blind for half an hour. And I was like, oh, I guess I'm just blind now. I guess that's the way it is. Oh, geez. so it was pretty bad, and I was like, oh, this is time to, it's time to stop this, um, before it gets any worse. So, um, but. You know, even after I was better for about a year, I still had a cupboard that was literally stocked full of uh, uh, morphine. Mm. Um, so, so you know, it was it was it was pretty ropey stuff. But um, uh, yeah, it was also an extreme time. So it wasn't like I, you know, I think it would be much easier for me to answer that question if if i if i was coming from oh well i was doing you know i was healthy and then i found a covered full of drugs and started taking them that'd be a much clearer um a clearer answer because you know like i said i was in constant pain and then also pain gets very very strange when it's um chronic because you're not sure whether you're in pain anymore or whether you're just imagining it whether it's psychosomatic it starts getting very very uh messy so yeah i have a quick yeah. question for you you mentioned you you were in hospital a few times for the overdoses while you were already in the hospital what were the doctors no, reactions i mean, I mean to that? sometimes i was coming into the hospitals uh-huh. for i mean sometimes i would have an attack of pancreatitis and have to go to hospitals and then i would also overdose and go to hospitals <laughs> Okay. So, uh, you know, but it, did the doctors have extreme reactions to you coming in with the, with the overdosing as well? Uh, it, it's funny. You can get chronic pancreatitis two ways. One is, and, and the very rare way is the way that I had it, which is, uh, a congenital defect. And the other is by alcoholism. So I would actually get no sympathy when I came in with, um, 
the pancreatitis because they thought I'd done it to myself by drinking, even though I was far too young to really have done that. So, yeah, my mom um, has lung so, cancer and she gets the same thing. She never smoked, but she, uh, but she has lung cancer and so and she gets yeah. the same like no sympathy thing. Well, you know, and even if you smoke, like, you know, it's just still like, shitty. <laughs> yeah, so I have some sympathy, <laughs> <laughs> right? Yeah, sick person. You know, person. it's like it just doesn't, it just doesn't help, and and um, and. You know, it's a very strange society we live in where some things are stigmatized. You know, some drugs are stigmatized, others aren't. Um, you know, alcohol is promoted as a social drug. Uh, coffee is. And, um, you know, they can be they can be destructive in everything can be destructive in different ways. You know, working too hard can be as destructive as uh, smoking. So one question I have is that you, you mentioned the complexity of this, that chronic pain is, is a very deep emotional experience, and it's also this very physical thing. And at some point, these medicines become both, right? They're, they're taming some of the emotional pain and anguish. They're giving peace. They're dealing with some of the physical pain. Then the pain comes roaring back. When you got to the end of this cycle that you were in, it sounds like you reached a place of self-recognition that you looked around and said, Oh no, you know, look at me picking out spiders, look at me going blind. I'm reaching a place of recognition. Or were there people in your life that kind of confronted you and said, Hey, this this isn't okay anymore. You need help. <laughs> and how did um, you ultimately no. stop using it? No, I was I was uh nobody really confronted me. Um you know, but again, partly because the illness was definitely covering up the uh the other side of it, I think. And and people uh, really felt powerless to to help because you know what are you going to say? Hey, don't don't take this medicine, or you know just take one, uh, you know one amount because because at the end of the day they, they didn't really take the edge of it, and and I don't really think you know with any of um, you know for me like an addiction is something that that is. Um, much more of a personality trait for myself, which, and it bounces between different areas. And none of these things are really about finding peace. They're usually about sort of a distraction or, or a way to, um, you know, a way to sort of not, uh, to sort of speed time up through whatever is uh, wanting, whatever I want to avoid feeling or experiencing. So, you know, yeah, I could take a lot of medicine and then, and then, uh, you know, not, not experience, uh, what I was, what I was, uh, what I was experiencing then, which was, uh, you know, constant pain and, you know, a lot of fear and a lot of this and a lot of that. So, and, and in the end, the, the operation I had was, it was a very high, it was like a 25% chance of, um, of, uh, you know, going wrong and dying and all that stuff. So it was like, not something that I, you know, there were, there were clear reasons why I didn't want to, uh, why I didn't want to experience that stuff. Hmm. You know, you mentioned that there's a history, not just of addiction to this particular medicine that got out of control, but you've noticed that pattern in your life. And in, in Penn Sunday school, you had also referenced that alcohol at one point had become just too much. And you kind of reached a place also with that, where it sounded like you kind of self-corrected. And alcohol was the greatest one I had to, was the easiest one to give up. God, I love, I love giving up alcohol. If everything <laughs> was like that, it would be, you know, addiction would not be a problem. So I, you know, I couldn't drink that much because, um, uh, 
uh, even after, uh, even now, you know, uh, my pancreas is not is not the same um, as everyone else's. So, you know, an alcohol is not very healthy for a pancreas. But I would find that when I would drink, then I would, um, you know, I would happily drink a bottle of wine and, uh, uh, you know, buy the glass and, and sort of like almost like chug the glass every time I did it. And uh, when I would drink one glass of wine, one glass of wine, I would suddenly drink a bottle, two bottles or, you know, whatever, whatever I was drinking. But I, um, I, when I gave up alcohol, my life got so much better that um, the, uh, you know, um, what I'd given up was, was far um less than what i than, than the than what i got back um and that and that's really only been that's most of the other things i've given up has been a long period of going like smoking i for a year i i missed smoking hmm. a year every day i would wake up go oh, i really want a cigarette every day and alcohol maybe for like three months i would think oh i quite like a drink but i've got so much more done and i'm you know feel so much better that I don't really want to drink. Wow. So I was fortunate in that way because I've, I've had friends who've had horrible struggles with alcohol. Mm. Yeah. And that is pretty rare. Um, you know, a lot of times when people give up a substance, life doesn't get better. <laughs> it actually sometimes gets worse because then right. you still have the same problems you had before. Only now you have to deal with it sober without that right. added comfort. So yeah, that's pretty fortunate that it, it worked out that way. Yeah, so I got I got a bit of a pass on alcohol, but you know, even now, if I the other like last year I think I went to um, I got uh, an IV, you know, a, a vitamin IV, and as soon as they plugged the needle in, I was like, oh, I want some morphine because mm-hmm. <laughs> wow. because yeah. it, it like it was kicking back into yep. when I was in hospital. I was going to ask yep. you uh, after yeah. that episode, as you've gone through the rest of your life do you now have a rule for yourself where, you know, pain will not require opiates or is that something that you negotiate? Yeah, you, I don't think you can. I mean, like, I mean, you can, but it's very, very unpleasant. I had, um, uh, this thing where they put a tube down your throat, mm-hmm. you know, I had to have that. And they use like benzos mm-hmm. when they do that stuff. And I had it once without benzos and it was really horrific. So a lot of these drugs, you know, you're gonna have a they're gonna sedate you, right. and as soon as they do, then you know when I wake up, I I'm I'm asking where the medicine cabinet is, and so now I've just um I've just sort of said to people I know, um and trust I've said just ignore, you know just just sort of like cold turkey me for a day. Hmm. and then i'll return to normal and thankfully i don't have to go through that very often but this stuff is so biological or whatever you want to it's it's very hard to resist and i've certainly um uh stopped giving myself a hard time for um you know when i when when those feelings come up because uh it doesn't really help me to try and like um it doesn't help me to feel bad for these feelings. It, it's much more effective for me just to accept them and um, try and channel that into a more positive way. Hmm. But, you know, like, like there are periods where I'll eat more than I should and I'm 
comfort eating. There are periods when I'm spending more than I should, than I'm, when I'm working more than I should. You know, um, I think that balance for me, it comes and goes. And, um, you know, certainly my 30s have been a lot better than my 20s. Mm, yeah. You know, and, and I want to ask this question too. Sometimes whenever people have that addictive trait and they find themselves abusing, you know, different substances throughout time, if they're able to get that under control, it works for a while. In your case, in your 20s, at least as I understood it on Penn Sunday School, you weren't famous. You, you were a regular guy. Right. You had a job. You were going through your life. Now, in your 30s, you've become world famous. Has that in any way made it harder or in some ways perhaps made it easier because the stakes are now so much higher to keep yourself under control? Yeah, in London, um, uh, you know, people are always like, oh, you're moving to Vegas and you struggle with addictions. You're going to be in a lot of trouble. Is that your fan? Vegas would be great, you know, very pleasant. Because Vegas is like, it pretends that all this stuff, but, you know, it's like, oh, you're going to get drugs and hookers and drinking and gambling. But it's like that stuff is almost regulated. Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas uh, in London, it's all very much like behind closed doors. So it's a, uh, I, I actually found being, being out here and, um, you know, I love doing shows. I love being busy. And so the more successful I've become, um, the more I've been able to do more shows I enjoy, choose my own work. And, um, you know, I've, I, I've had a very stable relationship with Jade for the last almost five, uh, five years, five, five and something years. So all of that has sort of like worked itself out, really. Hmm. It sounds like that's actually made it easier for you to avoid relapsing into problematic stuff. Yeah. And also the decisions I've made over the you know, I've sort of realized that, um, that uh, building a stable home or a stable work life um, ha- like helps everything else. Because yeah, for a long time I was like, oh, why am I you know, doing whatever I was doing? And then I would sit down and talk to somebody about it and I'd be like, oh yeah, it's pretty clear. It's because I'm in constant pain or, you know, like I don't have any money or, uh, you know, I'm like in an incredible stressful, stress, stressed, uh, uh, state all the time so yeah well and you brought up a really good point you know that i want to kind of emphasize for a lot of our listeners which is that how slippery of a slope it can be especially at that time period you know in the early 2000s when there was a lot of misleading information with opioid prescriptions and uh just kind of how it was presented by pharmaceutical reps and all that but also just the idea of like i have pain i have a legitimate physical disorder therefore i have a prescription and then even going it gets a little gray too when we're talking about are you taking as prescribed well i am by this doctor right not by this doctor but oh, by this doctor a, I am. yeah it's, it's a it's a nightmare yeah and it and especially at that time and i think that you know kind of emphasizes the point that we we should have some empathy a lot more empathy as a society for you know what people are going through as far as you know recovery especially from opiates um and how easy it is for people to slide into this. Cause I think a lot of people, especially like when we talk about heroin, cause I've worked with a lot of heroin addicts and uh, I think a lot of people have the misconception that they just started using heroin or they were, you know, using alcohol, then switched to heroin. Well, most of them 
kind of fell into it the same way that you got into the opiates. It was a medical condition. They had a prescription, could no longer get the prescription and had to get the heroin. John, one question I have for you is at the amount that you were using, how did you stop? Did you need medicine to help you stop? Uh, No, because I was horribly, horribly sick. (laughs) So I, I could stop and I would still, whether I was taking it or not, I would feel horrific. Mm, Right. So I was able to, I, I stopped taking it. Um, and, um, and, you know, I felt slightly better. Right. You were going to suffer anyway. May as well just get it all done in one. Yeah, that's what I mean. You know, that's, that's why, whereas I think if I'd have taken it on like a blank canvas, then, um, it would have been a lot more problematic Mm. and other things have been, you know, like other things have been more problematic for me, but, um, but at the time, yeah. And, and it's not a nice thing to take. You know, it's like, um, uh, you know, I had a lot of, uh, I can't remember the side effects now, but there was definitely uh, shaking, sweating, like grinding my teeth. Uh, you know, my eyes were dilated. I, I was, it was, I was a pretty hot mess. So it wasn't like, um, uh, you know, all of that was an improvement when I stopped taking it. And all of this stuff, it's like, it is really difficult to stop, but it passes. You know, it doesn't take that long. Yeah. Um, compared to your life. Right. You go through a bad and, and so I don't think it's very helpful when people are like, oh, well, how are you going to go through that withdrawal? It's like, you're going to get through it and it'll be over this before, before you know it. And you'll be out the other side and then you won't have the absolute horror show that you were living with. On, on a daily basis and you'll have the gratitude of that. And then very quickly it will all seem worth, worth it. Right. One question I had too was, you know, coming up in London, I've had a lot of folks, international folks who have shared with me that there's a very peculiar stigma about mental health and behavioral health, sometimes in Europe and sometimes, especially in London and maybe a stiff upper lip kind of mentality. We don't complain. We don't observe. Um, did you find that that was ever something that contributed to the problem that if you did need help or some of the conditions that were underlying all this, that the reason we were drinking, the reason we used drugs, the reason we had addictive patterns to hide the emotions or to mask things, did you ever find that there was sort of a stigma that it wasn't okay to seek help or to talk to somebody? Not really because, um, because, I, no, hang on. Let me just rephrase it. I think there's, like I was saying, it's like, um, you know, I was raised in a very, in a very uh, uh, strict uh, evangelical church. So if you were smoking cigarettes, then you would be going to hell. Hmm. So I, I definitely took on that judgment because it made me, you know, be able to separate myself from um, from others and, and, uh, you know, feel better about myself. And, um, now I would say that's, that's a very clear example of that. You know, if some, okay, somebody's smoking, they're going to hell. Now, now rationally, it's very easy to look at that and say, well, that's ridiculous. But that judgment, judgment, like you say, is there on like people who take heroin, people who, um, you know, have a gambling addiction. And meanwhile, people who are, um, 
you know, horribly addicted to work or uh, a whole bunch of different things, you know, overeating or whatever it is, um, you know, they judge in order to feel better about themselves. And, um, you know, that's why I loved judging people because it meant I could give myself a pass. Oh, oh I'm not doing that. And then when I started having real problems, um, you know, that all sort of came crumbling down. And I just think, I just think it's so, um, you know, this thing about like good drugs, oh, the doctor prescribed it, so that's okay. And bad drugs, oh, you smoke weed, uh, so that's bad. But sometimes you smoke weed and that's fine. Sometimes, at, at the end of the day, I just felt like, uh, it's just about whether it's making my life manageable or unmanageable. And um, for any substance, any, anything, any like behavior, uh, I just, I just ended up having to say to myself, does this make my life unmanageable or more or, or manageable? And that became the thing because I think like this judgment thing is, is just rife. Right. Yeah, I agree. And I, I think it also takes a, a, a pretty good amount of insight to be able to ask that question and to be able to answer it honestly, you know? Right. Yeah. Yeah. So coming here to America and living your life the way you have, how do you have balance now? You talked about how you try to stay in a manageable place. You have pretty good work life balance, relationship balance. What is your self care strategy that has allowed you to be successful and not go back to those old addictive masking behaviors? Um, I, I don't know really, because I felt like I fought all of my life until I was probably early thirties with, uh, various addictions. And, um, I felt like throughout that period, I was getting nowhere, even though, uh, the reality is I was giving up giving them up one by one it just felt like i wasn't making progress and then eventually um my like i said my life was manageable enough and then i felt like i didn't have to fight as much and then i felt and then suddenly because i wasn't like in a massive conflict all the time then my anxiety went down hugely and um then i didn't want to uh you know lean on any of my addiction so much and so it's sort of like uh it's still describes like one thing to the other mm-hmm. because you know and they always call it the addictive cycle as well like and when it's going the other way and it's like your addictions are ramping up then like the anxiety is feeding the addiction which feeds the anxiety which feeds the addiction so you know the more i was able to give up um and 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 also get under the control because you can't some of them you can't give up you know you can't but we all have to, we all have to work. We all have to uh, have relationships. We all have to eat food. You know, those are the ones that you can't just never eat again or, or whatever it is. So, but once they started like ramping down, then the anxiety would go down a bit. And then, so the need to act out will go down a bit. So then it, it, it was just a slow process that there was no, I didn't really find any shortcuts to. Yeah, and, and, and luckily enough, you know, the things that would kill me, then I was able to put those down uh, before they did. Yeah. And that, I just think that's luck. That part of it, I just think is luck. Because I had plenty of good friends who weren't able to do that. Hmm. 
Yeah, I think it's hard whenever you see it firsthand and you see it in other people. And it's hard because it's hard to know how to help them, you know. But I think by telling your story, it, it starts to give at least that sense of hope that it can get better for a lot of folks. You, throughout your life, it sounds like you've gone through anxiety. You've gone through depression. Yeah. You know those things firsthand. You know how you tried to self-medicate and how that ultimately made that worse and fed that cycle. It sounds like you were able to break your cycle by starting to pull back from some of those self-medications that got in the way. Have you ever? Well, no, also, no, also, no, I, I, I don't think I've ever really been depressed uh, other than after I was ill and, and right. that I was depressed for a good reason because, right. you know, I'd gone through four years and now I couldn't, you know, I had a very big operation. It was like being in a car crash. <clears throat> so, you know, and, and, and a chunk of my, my twenties have been, had really been, uh, you know, I guess wasted maybe. Um, but you know, all my life I've dealt with massive anxiety mm. and, um, I had to get to a place where I went, Oh, this isn't normal. This is like, this is objectively, uh, mismatched with what's going on in my life. You know, this is like a fight or flight reaction to a situation that doesn't exist. Mm. And when I realized that, I realized that, I'd, that I had to find some sort of uh, medical treatment for that. And, um, you know, because it's easy enough to say, oh, you should exercise, you should eat, you should do that. Well, guess what? I did all that mm -hmm. and it didn't go away. Mm -hmm. So I had to try a bunch of uh, antidepressants and they take three months to make sure they're working or mm -hmm. not. You know, I tried one thing and I woke up and I was like, oh, I think I should jump out of a building today. Mm. And luckily, I was able to ring up the doctor and say, um, I, I believe I should jump out of a building. And, and fortunately, because I'd had that experience with picking out invisible spiders and, and understanding that just because I thought something was real doesn't mean it was, it is. Mm. I was able to ring up a doctor immediately and say, oh, I, I think I should jump out of a building. So um, what do I do next? Mm -hmm. And they had to like really talk me down off it. It was like, not emotionally, right? just like as in logically, because I was like, oh no, I should just jump out of a building. So they were like, you have to do this, drink, you know, drink, I can't remember what they said, you know, I had to drink water, I had to do this, I had to get this prescription. I to... But it was like a physiological, biological uh, thing. And, and eventually I found a, uh, a medicine that didn't, alter my mood because that was important because if it like changed the way I was feeling then I knew that I would abuse it and um and it and it got rid of that uh crazy um you know fight or flight anxiety level but you know that was just something that I couldn't work through myself I just had to realize that I needed a you know that that was a um a chemical thing and then that's really good insight that you have that. And that's something we've talked about a lot on the show before is this idea that feelings aren't facts and being able to recognize that even though I feel this way, I feel like jumping off the roof. That doesn't mean that like this, this, this is part of the chemical reaction going on in my head. I don't have to act on that. And that's really good insight that you had that you got from the uh, use of the opiates. Another thing that I wanted to point out too, is that you, you kind of talked a while back about, with uh, the substance use and getting to that point where when you had that, uh, I can't remember how we worded it, that, that desire, that craving or whatever it was, that trigger 
to not assign any kind of meaning to it. Like this is bad or I shouldn't be feeling this way, but just to kind of accept it. Like, okay, this is interesting. I have this, I, I got that IV and I'm, now I'm having this sensation. That's interesting. And not putting a label to it. And that's something that we've kind of talked about before on the show with, um, even with anxiety is this mm-hmm. radical acceptance of I'm feeling anxious, being able to recognize and identify it, but not have to put a meaning to it. Like, this is bad. I shouldn't be feeling this way because then it kind of puts added pressure that something's wrong. And then that kind of increases the anxiety. It's just anxiety about anxiety at that point. So I think that was, yeah, I found, I found it really, like I was saying, it really feeds itself. Yeah. You know, the anxiety feeds the addiction and vice versa. But once I started, um, you know, I went to a lot of 12 step meetings for, four or five years, I think for, for a long time. And I found them very, very helpful. Um, and, you know, I remember hearing things like this guy was like, Oh, I finally got it. I'm never going to get it. And I was like, Oh wow. That's like huge. Cause I, I wanted to like graduate from that, from that, uh, <laughs> you know, fr- from my addictions. And, and I kind of realized that, that in some way or another, they're always going to be there. But the amount, the amount that, that personality trait has also been useful to me um you know cannot i can't really understate like when i'm problem solving um you know i'm a magician so my problem my it's we're always i'm always trying to do something that you can't do and 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 keep like circling in on the solution and all of that um behavior is very very closely tied to um you know how I would act uh looking for 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 uh you know whatever addictive hit I was looking for yeah so I I see it now as like two sides of the same coin I think that's right it's like you know the good side of it means that I've been able to um uh you know I've been very lucky in being able to achieve a lot of um a lot of my career goals and then um and and also like you know do what i do in terms of the show or, or anything like that and then the the negative side the the tails the, the flip side is is something that i have to manage and be careful of um and just sort of know my limitations with it yeah yeah you know i definitely hear in your voice a, a sense of respect understanding that things can go very wrong very fast Oh, within 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 hours. <laughs> yeah. Within hours. It's a powder keg ready to explode. And and there's a deep reverence for that. It's interesting, there's multiple things that you said throughout our conversation today that definitely made me think he's been through twelve step. He's using some of the language. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, it sounds like that's been part of your success, part of your story. What is one of the biggest takeaways that you got from the rooms and the meetings that uh you keep with you? Uh oh, there were a lot, but um uh definitely um that everyone that um you know i think sometimes people talk about addicts and non-addicts and to a degree i think that's true but i also think that um we're all much more alike than we are different um so you know that that's been reassuring to me some of the more insane things that i think um it was a huge comfort to know that other people would, would think the same. Um, and just like, 
you know, the main thing is just to try and uh, just to try and stop before I would do something. You know, I had a friend last year, and uh, he committed suicide out of nowhere, mm. and um, you know, nobody saw it coming. Blah blah blah. Like a lot of these things, and I just think there have been plenty of times when uh you know that could have been me not because i was in like oh a terrible sad place or anything like that just because i could have made the wrong stupid decision at the wrong time and um you know certainly like removing the judgment from all of it and just go okay that yeah i think i think that's what i took from it just like a lot a lot slower and just a, a lot you know a lot slower to judge a lot make myself a lot um a lot slower to act and to realize that um any sort of success i've had in this has basically been um as much about luck as it has been about work hmm. sounds like you try to stay very humble as well uh yes but only because the, like, only because um that's the only thing that would make sense confronted with the facts you know i was like <laughs> I was like waking up in blackout, blackout, uh, you know, from from blackouts, not knowing where I was. I was being shown things that I didn't remember, and 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 for me to go, oh well, somehow I managed to guide myself through that period. And like, no, mm. it's just like, luckily enough, you know, I didn't uh, throw myself off a building during that period. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. You know, there was a time when um, one of the reasons I stopped drinking was I. Uh, was I was staying was staying in this apartment and it had this gate that you had to enter a code to get through, and I I'd, I'd forgotten the code, so I decided to scale this fence and jump over it. And in London, all of the fences they have these very sharp spikes on the top, so I navigated these very sharp spikes, you know, very when I was very very drunk and whatever I was, and sort of fell over the wall and landed on my feet. And got to the door, and when I put my hand in for my into my pocket to get my keys, I found the piece of paper with the code on it. Oh wow! And I was just like, "Oh, I could have just killed myself." Wow! You know, I could have easily killed myself. I decided that the only sensible thing to do was to scale a fence, and then you know, it turns out I had the paper all the time. And 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 even though that sounds a very stupid, you know, minor story, like that's how people <laughs> that's how people died. Yeah, no, that's so, true. Yeah. So, you know, I was just grateful to 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 have made it through. Yeah. And I think there's a, a huge thing to say there for recognizing our own inability. A lot of people don't do that. A lot of people think, oh, it's fine when they're confronted by friends and family and they say, hey, this is scaring us. You're doing really dangerous things. Oh, I'm fine. You guys make a big deal out of it. It's not that big of a deal. It sounds like for you, you didn't necessarily have a lot of that denial. You can kind of see it inside of yourself. Yeah, yeah, and and it was things that I didn't. You, you know, the other thing was that like I didn't want to really be doing this stuff. I was doing it like I was saying to escape a lot of anxiety. So, um, you know, I think I've had friends who've had a different experience of addiction where they've, you know, they've gone out looking for a good time, mm. um, and then that has become a problem down the road. And 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 again, every, the other thing I learned from being in twelve-step rooms was that. Everyone, everyone has very different ways in, or experiences. But there's always like, but there's always somebody who has had your experience or my experience. Mm. Right. 
Yeah. Do you have any advice for anybody that might be going or trying a 12 step meeting for the first time? Um, I don't know. I stopped going in the end because in Vegas, I, I found them, um, uh, kind of crazy and I found a different way to do it. So, um, you know, I definitely, I think one of the dangers is you go, well, this is like my last resort. Mm. So that's definitely, if if 12 step doesn't work for you, then there'll be something that works. Right. Mm. You know, so definitely if you find it, it's not a good fit then don't give up. But, um, but equally it's like hugely successful for a lot of people. So, yeah. Um, and we have a lot of, as, as I'm sure, you know, we have a lot of listeners that are, um, not religious. Can you talk about that aspect of the 12 step and just dealing with that as, as someone who uh, was once religious or you, just talk about that. I'm going to put words in your uh, mouth. I think that's the thing that I find hardest these days now is because, you know, when I was, you know, I, I look back and I go, okay, well, where did this anxiety come from? And maybe some of it is, uh, you know, biological or genetic or whatever, but, but certainly some of it came from uh, feeling like, Oh, um, you know, there's an eternity that is separated, separated into either uh, heaven, which is an uh, for me, it was a uh, a waking existence without a break, and that was already terrifying. Mm, right. And then the other side of it was, um, was oh well, there's also a hell where you know it's like eternal pain. So um, that huge level of anxiety was created with that, but also um uh a belief in 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 god was created so i think that 12 step thing can be some people some people find the higher power thing really useful some some people i know who are atheists find a way to um uh a way to make it work for them which because that's the thing about 12 steps is like uh there's nothing in it which says that your higher power has to be a uh an actual God. So some people find a way to, um, to thread that needle. And then, um, you know, I found like, I, I found, and I still do that. My experience of that religion is, um, you know, religion or whether there is or is not a, a God or something out there. I find that that's not very helpful for me to uh, think about because there's no answer. Otherwise we would have it. There's a great Philip K. K. Dick book where uh, somebody proves the existence of God, and it's uh, it's like it's uh, it which it changes everything about the world. Hmm. Huh. Um, so you know the so although although we all like maybe we're not we all but a lot of us like look for the truth, then no we're clearly not going to get a light bulb moment. Yeah. Um. So I've just found that I have to like be okay with that ambiguity and find a way through it and um and in that way um that that none of that was affected by the 12 step program i i found i found i could have a home in in the 12 step program with that belief happily yeah wow that's great but there's you know there's always a lot of excuses to not do something and uh, <laughs> you know and, and and that's a good excuse to uh to walk away from a 12 step room yeah, that's true. So, you know, I, I, John, I definitely want to honor your time. I want to thank you so much um, because this May being Mental Health Awareness Month, it's an opportunity for us 
to try to increase people's awareness. And I think to hear that a, a person that has reached your level of success relates to the average listener who might be going through the same thing and in hearing how a person succeeded and got through it and in hearing that empathy in your voice and that sense of understanding and non-judgment, I know it means the world to a lot of folks. And there's people that may be on the edge as they're listening to this, especially during the pandemic. We're hearing more and more of skyrocketing rates of painkiller abuse and anxiety. Um, a second ago, we asked what advice you'd have for somebody who's just starting 12-step. And you had said, hey, don't give up. There's always another option. Lean in. Um, last thought, last question to you is, what advice might you have for somebody out there who's just feeling hopeless, feeling despair, maybe they're riddled with anxiety as you once were, and maybe they've tried in all the wrong ways to fix it? Um, I think the most, and it's funny, you know, you mentioned like the success and things, that um, the happiest I've been is when I was, when I was like just scraping a living with this stuff, um, you know, doing what I love because, because at the end of the day, from a career level, it just gets more challenging. Mm. Um, you know, the, the more successful I've become, the more, um, challenges. And I mean, they're not, they're kind of like luxury problems, they're high class problems, but they're still problems. They still like, mm. still take a lot of time to deal with. So that doesn't solve anything. Um, and one of my friends, in fact, my sponsor, actually, he was just like, well, just today, everything's fine, right? And I was like, yeah, you know, he's like, you, can, you, could, you have enough to eat today and you have enough, uh, you know, you have a roof over your head and this sort of and this. And if, we, and if I didn't, by the way, then I'd have to fix that for today. You know, I would never try and fix it for tomorrow, just fix it for today. And I found that was the most useful thing to, to really just like start uh, enjoying today because, um, you know, unless you can enjoy that, it's, it's, it's not going to get much better. And, and, um, and I think until like, until there's like, you have, you have some sort of life that's, uh, um, you know, like if, if I was still in, if, if I was still in chronic pain from pancreatitis, I wouldn't find it, uh, as simple as I do today to not take morphine. Mm -hmm. So I think it's like, it really is about just that, just trying to do the best you can for today and, and just make that day at a time progress. Mm -hmm. Because that's the only thing that changes it long term. And then, and then you start looking back after a week or a month or a year and you start going, oh, actually, I have come a long way. Mm -hmm. But you know, I, look, I gave up, I gave up like morphine uh, I gave up like a real opiate uh, dependency and I absolutely felt like I'd made no progress in addiction for four years. Mm, wow. Mm -hmm. You know, and I look back and I'm like, Oh my God, that was huge. And yeah. then I just, at the time I just didn't see it. So yeah. Incredibly huge. One day at a time. Yep. Anything that stops you from jumping off that building today is huge. Yes. Mm. Because it, you know, it means you get another chance tomorrow and another chance the day after, and um, you know, it's just that, it's just that incremental progress, uh, and and then suddenly, uh, and I always last thing I say is I used to have this thing where when I was in hospital, I felt like I'd always been in hospital, and when I was out of hospital, I felt like I'd never been in hospital. Huh. So, I would go in to hospital. 
and come out three or four weeks later. And three days later, I felt like I'd never been in hospital. Hmm. You know, and, 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 and I think that's, um, you know, that's like this, the human way of dealing with this, with, uh, you know, life as it is. So however, like crazy and hopeless it seems, it's amazing how quickly that can change. Hmm. And, you know, a, a week or two days later, you can be like, the fuck was I thinking? You know? Yeah. It's amazing. Good point. And so no matter how bad things seem listener, it may seem like that's the way it's always going to be. One day you'll look at your life and think, I can't believe I ever thought that, that you'll feel as infinitely far away from that moment as this moment feels infinitely permanent today. That's just a perspective. John, thank you so much for sharing with us. Thank you for being willing to break the stigma, to show folks that there's a way forward. And I think you've given us a lot of hope today. I think a lot of people are going to hear this and feel like, all right, if that guy can do it, maybe I can too. Yeah. Right. And the next time people are uh, watching me on stage making a child cry, uh, <laughs> you know, they'll be like, yeah. wow, yeah. that guy's yeah. a real That's dick. his anti-drug. That's... <laughs> At least he's sober. <laughs> I keep saying maybe you shouldn't tell this whole story as part of your stage act, but you don't, you don't change. And that's, that's it. That's yeah, the big this, is, this is the opening 45 minutes. <laughs> yeah, people and are leaning in. Children sobbing. When, did, when, does, when does he do the magic thing? I thought, wasn't there like a nice dog? <laughs> All right. John, thank you so much yeah, for joining us. Yeah, thank you so much. We appreciate Thanks, it. Thanks, guys. Bye. Right. Take Bye. care, brother. Well, that was great. Cool. A lot of fun, man. Really great guy. Yeah. And, uh, I think that's a huge message. I think everybody needs to hear that message. And, you know, I think it's fantastic because he doesn't downplay it. He's, right. you know, one of the most important things that he said that I thought, oh, God, I hope everybody heard that. One was shame, you know, mm-hmm. that this in no way serves me to think mm-hmm. about this shamefully or guilt that doesn't work. It's about what works, not whether it's true or false, about what works. Talked about the same thing with God. He said it doesn't help me to contemplate that. I don't personally like that thought, so I avoid it. Mm-hmm. That's fine. I give myself permission and I don't have an answer. But another thing was, at all moments, I respect the danger that this poses to my life. Yes. Do you remember once yes. you had that idea of the tiger you yeah, wanted to bring I, to the rehab? I said, I, I, yeah, because I said that. I said, if I had my way. <laughs> if there were no laws. If there were no laws and no ethics boards, I would give everybody who came in and started in early addiction, I would give them all a pet tiger. <laughs> and that's going to be your own little pet tiger to take care of. Yeah. You know, and the reason why is because regardless of how well you take care of it, it's always a tiger. Right. And, and people always get hurt the same way mm. when they stop respecting it. Yeah. You know, when they start playing around with it and they start poking it with a stick, mm-hmm. that's when you get your face ripped off. Yeah. And it's a perfect analogy for addiction because you have to have respect for addiction. You have mm-hmm. to understand that, yeah, I've been clean and sober for four years now. I got this. When the moment you say you got this, it means that you've kind of lost respect for it. That's right. And what he was talking about is like, oh yeah, like in an hour, like it, mm-hmm. you know, it can, everything can change very quickly. As soon as you lose respect for it, you start playing around with it. You don't understand, you forget what it can do. Then that's when it comes back and rips your face off. Yeah. Yeah. No, absolutely. And you know, that was just, I, I found that to be profound, mm-hmm. you know, to, to have somebody kind of take off the costume and say, you know, I'm a real human being, just like all of you. And I was the guy in the bed next to you at the hospital going through, you know, pain and, and addiction stuff. And, uh, you know, just how relatable is that? And then to have it turn into a message of hope, but also a message of caution and, and reality and saying, hey, don't delude yourself. 
you know, see the, the problem behaviors that you're doing, see the self-destruction. And if you find that you're doing that, if you find that you, you are doing self-destructive things that don't make any sense, and, and as John said, unmanageable. Mm-hmm. You know, that, that, of course, as soon as you and I heard that word, we thought, oh, he's been to the rooms. Yeah. You know, but he talked right. about, it's about making my life manageable. These things do not assist me in making my life manageable. And then he right. gives himself permission to say, I just judge it one day at a time. If I was still going through pancreatitis, perhaps I would listen to the doctor and we would incorporate medicine into my regime. Mm-hmm. That would be judged on a day-to-time basis and be scaled by its manageability. I, You know, another thing, too, I, I, I like the fact that, you know, when we're talking about the anxiety, that medication was an option. You know, mm-hmm. it wasn't something that's like, nope, can't take can't meds. Take it's medicine. like, okay, well, yeah, I've tried, and he tried all these other things, you know, and if if you try something and it doesn't work, that doesn't mean you just give up. I mean, you just you you go to the next thing, and mm-hmm. you're going to try some medications. And it's there's no medication that works consistently for everybody. It is a little bit of trial and error, you know. And it, you have to be patient and go through that process. Yeah. So special special thanks to John who joined us for Mental Health Awareness Month. Um, and you know, shout out to anybody out there who's inspired by the story. Don't keep it a secret. Get out there just like he did and let the world know that they're going to be okay. Uh, each one, reach one. Keep your story in front of other people. Give them hope. Stay inspired. And I think if we can all believe that it gets better, it will get better. And that's something I want everybody to hold on to. So with that, we will take our first break. Um, and uh, when we come back, we are going to discuss a relationship affected by corona. You're listening to Pod Therapy. This week's Thera producer sponsor is Ellie O'Dare. Today's first trivia question in honor of Thera producer Ellie O'Dare is... Voiced by Benedict Cumberbatch in the cinematic release, this dragon is the main antagonist to J.R.R. Tolkien's 1937 novel, The Hobbit. Hmm. If you'd like to join Ellie O'Dare and make the show possible, you can go to patreon.com slash therapy and sign up. Again, that's patreon.com slash therapy. I know it. He knows the answer. I know it. (laughs) Do you really? I do. Do Are you into that that universe? Okay. (laughs) You just happen to know the name of the dragon? That is is a piece of information. uh, (laughs) That's lodged. (laughs) My my parents or my grandmother either read me that book, The Hobbit, when I was a kid. And the name of the dragon, for some reason, has stuck in my head for my life. Really? Yeah, yeah. I couldn't tell you anything else about... (laughs) Uh, that that entire thing, but for some reason the name of the dragon sticks in my head. All right, I gotta know what is it? Smaug. Smaug. Yeah. Oh, that's not true. Yes. No, that's true. The dra- dragon's name is Smaug. Like Smog. It but sounds not quite. like that's what you're doing. Yeah, yeah. It's not, it's not like quite Smog. You're like swankifying Smog. Yes. Like it's Smoggy out here. It's it's pretty much exactly it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that is a memorable name. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> For some like fair. since I was a child, that name has stuck in my head. Yeah. <laughs> that feels right. Yeah. <laughs> Smog. <laughs> I do own a uh, a first edition of The Hobbit. Oh my god. Uh that I, that I found at a, uh, at a at a fun antique a used bookstore years ago. I wonder wow. what that's worth. And uh, it's worth something. Yeah, it's, it's, it's not. Something. It's not nothing. Not nothing. I don't. It, yeah. I don't think it's like incredible or anything. Really? Yeah, yeah. Okay. I mean, I I bought it from people that. Oh, sorry. I, it's not a first edition. It is a oh. first edition of the illustrated version. Yeah. Oh, okay. So, so that beautiful illustration that was done in the in the seventies that they then made the yeah. cartoon movie out of. It's that. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, no, it's cool, but it, it's not like a. Yeah. Like, it's probably worth a couple of hundred bucks. Right. Wow. Yeah. 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 That's still way more invested in something that you have no attachment to than I thought you'd be. 
Well, I found it, and, and I was like, "This is super cool." <laughs> it's it's cool. It's valuable. I guess you're gonna grab it. No, but you seem like the antique type. Like you I enjoy am. going to antique. I love I love that like stuff. That. When I, I think do, of yeah, Jacob, I think fun. antiquing. I don't go antique. <laughs> that's not true. But but things, but like I mean antiques and uh, and and books like that. Rare yeah. rare books like that. I, I'm I'm really interested in. You should, and especially this. like an illustrated book. Oh yeah, yeah. Like yeah. a really, a really neat illustration of a book is, I think, is a really neat. Thing. I didn't know you yeah. had treasures. I think you should incorporate this into robe time. It should be show and tell. You should <laughs> have like it's like Pee Wee Herman has a special thing of the day, right? <laughs> Jacob's like, and this is my limited edition Jacob's bourbon and antique books, <laughs> right? <laughs> Why not? Why not? It's halfway there. That'd be so pretty fancy. much. That'd be pretty much it. Yeah. It's pretty much there already. All he's to do is show and tell, like yeah. his antique or whatever random treasure he has. It's like, okay. There you go. This is the first addiction Moby Dick. I don't know why right. I have this. Anyway. We do have lots of really interesting and like weird stuff in our house. Like yeah. we have we have several antique toys yes. that are that are oh, worth something, but like toys from the early nineteen hundreds. Oh wow. Again, not worth a lot. But interesting. But but like and also just weird that we have them. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. yeah. <laughs> like, why does Jacob and SJ have this? Uh, who knows? Yeah. What What is this? Oh, that. Uh, that's an 1850s uh, original uh, doll. Right. Why do you have that? Who knows? Because he's the fucking Highlander, and I've been saying it this whole time. Yeah. Jig is up, dude. That's yeah. it. They Jig weren't antiques up. when he bought them. Yeah. Well, it's weird I have all this. You also have not been yeah. saying that the whole time. You've definitely been saying that for a week. It's been one week that I've yeah. been correct. I've been right. Hey, guys, uh, thank you for continuing with the show. You're welcome. (laughs) It provides a refreshing level of continuity in these uncertain times. That being said, since I'm no longer driving by Tim Hortons when I come home from work, I figured, why not give you guys my donut money? I like my advice honey-dipped, if you please. (laughs) Sounds like a Canadian. As elementary schools, kindergarten to grade 5, so ages like 5 to 11, start reopening with a new sense of what is normal, how do you think teachers can support mental health in terms of the kids and fellow staff. Any thoughts for those of us not opening until next September, almost six months after the last day of school? Attached are the guidelines, oh, neat, released by one of the schools opening in May. I added arrows to each item that I think might affect students' mental health the most. Cheers, coffee, maple, scoop. Interesting. Oh, you've got the list there. I got it, yeah. What what things jump off off the list there? Okay, so these are uh, guidelines, I guess? Yeah. Uh, so once assigned to a class, students will spend their entire day, including lunchtime, in their assigned seats. Ooh, geez, that's hard to do. Five years old, trying to keep them glued to a seat? Okay. Go, yeah. go on. What else okay. is on the red, uh, red Students arrow must not expect to return to their regular classes with their classmates. Oh. Your child may not be with the same teacher as before, as several members of our staff will not be returning to school. Oh, wow. Uh, sharing of all items... Pencils, pens, sharpeners, wax crayons, rulers, toys is not permitted. Really? Oh, wow. They can't share their... No. Nope. Okay. Uh, when huh. weather permits, recess breaks will be held outdoors and will entail a will entail of walking outside safe, safely distanced from one another in a prearranged pattern. That definitely sounds like a prison. <laughs> it, do, it does. Like, all of this sounds like a prison. Oh, wow. It's like, uh, oh, they even call it yard time. No. <laughs> I'm kidding. They don't. <laughs> uh, gatherings, groups of students together, will not be permitted. Wow. Uh, bathroom visits will be monitored, escorted, so that the proper disinfectant by your caretaker can be uh, can follow before another student uses the facilities. Wow. 
and there will be no physical activity taking place in the gym, no art classes, although art and craft projects can be promoted as home suggestions. Wow. No library periods, no drama classes. Wow. So that's, man, that is a... First off, thank you for sending this Coffee Maple. You yeah. know, thank you that, you know, we're getting kind of a, a real inside view of an actual list of things that a school is considering implementing. That's a is lot. Is this considering or, or is this... Sounds like sounds it, this is, is happening. Yeah. That's the guidelines. So it's a good question. I mean, so I think any human who reads that list immediately sees how difficult that is to implement. I mean, my daughter's five, and, and, if, and she's going to start kindergarten next year. And I'm concerned about this. Like, if she goes into school and she's told, sit still, do not get out of your desk, she is not going to succeed very well. You couldn't follow these I guidelines. I can't do it. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> So it's really hard for kids. And then, like, you're teaching them all these things like, hey, when you have to go potty, you raise your hand. And, and like, you're fostering independence. But then at the same time, we're teaching them, like, to fear this at all times and, like, don't trade things and don't hand up. And, like, little kids share toys. They share lunch. You know, they trade lunch. <laughs> you know, they all sit next to each other and eat and, and drink and talk and make a mess. They're little kids. And so it's just really, really hard to imagine how you're supposed to implement this, how you're supposed to... And, and I feel terrible for the teachers. I feel terrible oh, yeah. for the my, staff. My anxiety automatically shot up reading this because that's who I empathized with. Oh, yeah. Is the, Impossible. The folks who have to enforce this is going to uh, be really tough. And, you know, that's hard, too, especially if you're a human with lungs and you're like, hey, I'm scared to catch this. Here's all these little kids that I'm supposed to be nose-to-nose with. And when you teach little kids, that's what you do. You you kneel next to their desk and you lean in while they're looking at the paper. That's what I do. That, you talk right to when you're when you're mentoring the youth of today, yep, yep, that's how you when, when Jacob, life coach, math tutor. <laughs> what do you want? That's what I do. I, whatever's needed, really. <laughs> Mommy, my math tutor smells like bourbon. Shut it. <laughs> yeah, but effective. <laughs> Get results, kid. <laughs> how do you? Okay, so I mean, but one of the questions that the writer asks is, how do you think this is good, would affect? mental health of a student. Yeah. I mean, how do you think this is going to affect their development? Kids adapt extremely quickly. And and I think that you you've seen this throughout time that there's lots of different ways to do school. And it, but but there needs to be said that if you look at the mental health of students in the strictest possible academic environments such as Korea, it's very bad. And and suicidality and depression are extremely bad in those environments. Now, there's also extra cultural exchange in there, you know, such as not allowed to get help and, and things like highly competitive, you know, order. But if you look at highly restricted environments, we already have kind of some good data to draw from, some right. real examples that teach us that's not the greatest way for, for children, A, to learn, to be actually academic successful and get you the results you're looking for, but also that it's not great for their general health. And mm-hmm. physical health, too, I'd add as well. So it, it is problematic. But I, I also think I look at this thing and say, okay, let's anticipate that there's going to be negatives. I think most humans that look at this say it's not going to be harmless. This, this, these guidelines do not look like they're benign. They look like they're going to have a negative impact. So then the question becomes a progressive one. So what can we do? You know, how can we as adults, if you're a teacher, if you're an administrator, if you're a family member, what can you be doing with kids to try to adapt to this? I think it's tricky because I think we're very tempted to tell them this is temporary. Don't worry, this is temporary. Don't worry, this won't be the normal. With children, I'm reluctant to always do that because kids have a very bad sense of time. Like I told my daughter that we're going on a camping trip and 
I'll let you guess how many times a day I get asked, when are we going on the camping trip? Like, she's right. literally getting food out of the pantry and putting it in a basket. And I'm like, what are you doing? And she's like, oh, it's for the camping trip. And it's like, that is three weeks away. <laughs> like, that means nothing to That means nothing. Yeah, yeah, they have no concept of time. And so I, I don't think that that actually is very reassuring. To an adult, it is. Because you can tell an adult, hey, listen, I know things are weird right now, guys. This is temporary. This will pass. Hang in there. Team effort. And most folks can go, okay, you know, thanks for letting me know. Like, keep us updated. That'll get you through it. Mm -hmm. Kids, I don't think so. How much of this is just going to be seen as, or not even seen as, how much of this is just lip service to people who don't want things to reopen at all? Right. But will not, like, in reality, a lot of those things just aren't going to happen. Because, I mean, it's like like we're talking about, like, you just can't keep a five-year-old in a seat for seven hours a day. Or yeah. however long school is now. I don't know how long oh, school I is Oh, I completely, now. yeah. So, oh, so so what you're saying is that... Like, it's, it's still going to come down to the teachers and, and dealing with them right. that way. And, and and I think another part of this, too, is that the school has to have policies and procedures in place to show that they're going to do something. Yeah. Right. And so a lot of this could just be that. Right? I'll that tell you right now, be anything that says students will not get out of seat, students will not... Anything that yeah, speaks to student right. behavior... That is make-believe. You are just shouting into the wind that right. you have no power to address that. I know and, nothing and about children, and I know that. That's <laughs> not going to happen. And the teacher is in, job, is in the job of educating. They're responsible to transmit information in a way that the child can digest, observe them learning it, assess whether they have it, address uh, missing ingredients of that, and they have to have classroom management. They have to create a way to manage human behavior so that they can address the learning thing. Mm-hmm. That has to be their highest goal. And now if we impose into that this huge healthcare burden of, like, now you have to know how to be an epidemiologist in your classroom, A, great PSA time to say pay teachers more because, <laughs> like, now you're asking them to do an awful lot. But B, I don't think it's, it's humanly possible. I, and so I think there's some things that are just good recommendations, like, oh, we're going to space them out this much. Here's how lunch is going to be handled. That's fine. Like, hey, guys, we're not going to amass 300 children in a cafeteria so that the teachers can go take a lunch break at the same time while one adult watches them. We're not going to do that. Okay, we're going to keep the kids in 20 to 30 packs in their rooms, keep them contained, and manage lunch that way. Okay, that, that's a sensible thing, but you're describing adult behavior. You're, not just, mm-hmm. you're describing what's going to happen with the kids, but you're not depending on the kids to do it. Mm-hmm. I think Jacob's right. I think a lot of this is just lip service. It's just like, hey, we're throwing out ideas. Hopefully this is what happens. I think that it's also going to be really, really hard because you're going to have this new confluence of factors where parents are still scared. Some parents are over it and like, hey, I'm tired of restrictions. You're going to have new opinions. Like, I don't want my kids to be overly restricted, overly hurt. I'm, I'm protective of them from that angle. Then another group of parents saying, I'm protective of my children from the healthcare angle. I'm scared that we're not doing enough. Then you're going to have teachers who feel the same way. Some teachers are like, this is not what I signed up for. You're getting in the way of me doing my job. Let me do my job. This is overreaction. Some teachers that are like, this sucks. Uh, yeah. How many adults are, are told that in order to earn your paycheck, you must submit yourself to you know, a 500 by 500 square foot room with 30 other humans that are running around that are known to be the least sanitary beings on earth, and I'm supposed to be responsible for educating them, but now this is like hazard pay you yeah. know, situation. So this is going to be weird no matter what. Yeah. So best ways that uh, teachers can help support the kids? I, I would say, number one, to, like you said, not not give the idea that this is going to be temporary, but just empathize Mm -hmm. and acknowledge the fact that yes this is challenging but we're going to make the best of it yes you know and try to be as optimistic as possible yeah demonstrate model that behavior that you want for the kids i think if the teachers see that uh you know miss thompson isn't upset by this and miss thompson's cool and she's 
she's calm and modeling that behavior, I think that's going to make a huge difference. Yes. They all hate Miss Thompson anyway, though. So yeah, you're right. You're right. Nobody likes Screw Miss Thompson. Thompson. Yeah. She's terrible. Yeah, we don't have any Thompson Patreons, do we? No, no, no. I don't no, think no. so. And okay. if there is, Johnson. <laughs> nobody likes Johnson. <laughs> no, I think you're absolutely right. Like, there, I've referenced the movie before, Life is Beautiful. It's about World War II internment camps. Oh, yeah, yeah. And there's a child who the whole time thinks it's a game, and his dad makes sure that he does. And, you know, obviously it's fiction, but I think it's a beautiful illustration of how adaptable children can be. That if you just set them up correctly on day one, make it okay, we're not walking around in fear, we're not giving them our sense of panic, we're not giving them our sense of dread, we're not saying, the reason we have to do this, boys and girls, is because there's a deadly killer virus that may destroy your family when you get home, and if you love grandma, you'll do this. That's inappropriate, right? Mm -hmm. So mental health at the end of the day, I think, can be very adaptive based on the, the context that it's in. If you, the adult, are presenting scary time and making this scary and intrusive and complaining all the time, it will infect the children. Mm -hmm. If it's just, this is how our school works, oh well, kids can actually thrive in that. There's lots of schools across America that are varying levels of strict. There's some that have slides built in from the second floor to the first floor that fall into a ball pit. And then there's some that are like boarding schools that you wear a suit and tie to your class every day and you do not talk or you'll be writing lines on the board. And, you know, I would argue that one of those is probably a little bit more mentally encouraging than the other one. But I wouldn't say that necessarily one is a recipe for dire, you know, distress and the other one isn't. So yeah. kids are highly adaptable. It comes down to how the adults present the thing, get through the thing. And, you know, if we look back in history, some of the scariest things that have happened in human history, the great wars and, and the great scary things that have happened, you can adapt for the kids and make it so the kids feel like they're just going through life. This is what normal is. As long as they can adjust to normal and then you keep it there and don't keep telling them this is temporary. One day it's going to get better. One day. Just, just let them adapt. Yeah. And then they'll just go. They'll just kind of stick inside the lines, and they'll be fine. Yep. You know what I just realized? What industry is really hurt by this is the ball pit industry. Yeah. The unsung victims of this yeah. whole thing. They're they're going down. Yeah, they're going to be hurt big time. Yeah. The the cesspool that is the McDonald's playground yeah. <laughs> is probably not going to come back strong after the sucker's over. Yeah. I mean, everyone is known for a very long time that ball pits are just disgusting. <laughs> yes. That's the place. It's just of... urine pits. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Or vomit. Yeah. yeah. Urine oh, vomit pits. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. The worst job you can have is the guy who has to get in there and clean it. But that's actually they the get best cleaned? job. Because I they don't, don't think that job exists. <laughs> I don't think anybody does it because there's no second guy that checks. Yeah, like, <laughs> yeah I did that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's been done for weeks. I remember one time they found like a homeless guy sleeping. <laughs> like the kid comes over. And, like, Certainly. I'm sure that's happened more than once. Yeah, I don't uh, know yeah. for sure that that's happened more than once, but that's definitely happened more than once. <laughs> 100% yeah. of the time there is a homeless man in the ball pit. So great question, uh, Maple Coffee Scoop. And thank you so much for patroning our show and kicking us yes. your, uh, your breakfast money. Yes. Appreciate that. Definitely so, appreciate that. Yeah, I love having new people get on board. So thank you so much for supporting us. Um, and with that, we are going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to wrap up the show. You're listening to Pod Therapy. This week's second Therapy Producer sponsor is Judy Schneider. Today's second trivia question in honor of Therapy Producer Judy is... This dragon character appeared in a series of children book, children's books and movies titled How to Train Your Dragon. I already know you know this one. Yeah, I do. Because it's, yeah. It's, yeah. This, this is right in your wheelhouse. Yes, I got it. <laughs> if you'd like to join Judy Schneider and make the show possible, you can go to patreon.com slash therapy and sign up. Again, that's patreon.com slash therapy. Dragon's name. Dragon. Faug. Faug. <laughs> 
got to put some swagger in it or else yep. you get it wrong. So it's Faug. Actually, it was Sean Connery. A lot of people don't know that. Yeah, in How to Train Your Dragon? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, Sean Connery co-stars with Kevin Costner. Very, very good film for children. Yes. Yeah. But he doesn't play a character. He plays himself just as a dragon. Yes. Yeah. They right. yeah, they don't they barely put a costume on him. I Ivan Drago. To... <laughs> that was Ivan Drago. <laughs> you know what? That's what all my impressions sound like. <laughs> yeah. What does Speedy Gonzalez sound like, Jacob? From I Ivan will break you. Yeah, okay. <laughs> I must break you. It just happens that's the phrase that I always use too. <laughs> this, is, this is my one impression. Take it or leave it. Yeah. So I was doing a, uh, I was filling out a thing the other day for, uh, or yesterday actually. I was filling out a thing yesterday for a voiceover uh, thing that I'm signing up oh, for. Oh, really? Oh, okay. And it's just like a, because I feel stupid. I'm like, I've got all the, I've got all the equipment at my house. Yeah, hell yeah. You uh, to do good voiceover stuff. And SJ's already been doing it and she's, and she's, it's going, it's starting to go pretty well. Uh, and so she was like, why don't you sign up? And it's like, oh yeah, that's true. I mean, I can just put clips of my voice on there. And if people if that's what people want, yeah. I don't know why they would want it, but if they if that's what they want, they can they can have that. Oh, they yeah. want it. Great. So there's this whole list of like what kind of accents can you do? <laughs> <laughs> and I mean, this is a list of hundreds of of different of different accents. You shouldn't and even different... click American. That shouldn't even leave that box unchecked. It was all I was like, all right, North American, fine. <laughs> like f- uh, whatever this is, fine. <laughs> <laughs> but then it was like, okay, I can I can do like Texas, yeah, and like South Louisiana, yeah, and American South, like yeah. general, yeah, that's fair. That's about it. Yeah, <laughs> you got two boxes. That's about it. <laughs> America, Southern United States, yeah, yeah. and scene, yeah. <laughs> well, how many phrases can you do? One. It's dragon. It has to do with the dragon. As long as you very specific voiceover work. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'm ready. You know what? I'm gonna have to reject this proposal. It's just not my thing. Yeah. I, I only work with dragons. Yeah, is yeah. this is what's this? Colgate? Okay. Cool. So like how do you guys uh, The dragon of toothpaste? <laughs> yeah. How are you guys weaving this in? <laughs> Sir, this is oddly specific. Now, yeah. now hear me out. Hear me, <laughs> hear me out. Four out of five dragons. <laughs> No, it's Colgate. a neat. It's a neat thing. It's a because um, SJ's been doing audiobooks. That's yeah. cool. But this other thing is, um, you you have things they get sent to you based on the criteria of your profile, uh. and then you record a, a quick little sample, like a thirty oh, second cool. sample of what they're looking for, uh. and just send it into them. Uh. And if they pick you, then you do it. And and the and the bits are usually like ninety seconds. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Or it might be like uh, like a, a lot of podcasts go to services like this to get intros for the podcast. Oh, yeah, yeah. Ah. yeah. Huh. Like, if you if you had just a standard intro, especially for, like, single host podcasts, it'll, you know, the musical play, and be like, yeah. oh, this week from the... Blah, 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 and now oh, you're a host. Right. Yeah. Right. yeah, yeah, yeah. Insert name here. <laughs> right. <laughs> or, but I mean, you would actually do the... You'd do the whole thing because it's specific just for that show. Oh, yeah. wow. Oh. Yeah, yeah so, like, if, if Jim that was doing a uh, a solo podcast... You know, you'd you'd send over the music to uh, to to me, yeah. along with the script that you want done for it, and oh, then I would just wow. do it, and it'd be like, and it would end with you. Know, and now your host, Doctor Jim Jobin. That's interesting. Huh. It's kind of like the and I would do it in that voice. Oh, I hope that one hundred percent of the time you do. <laughs> it, it's kind of like the 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 graphic design place that we went through. Oh, oh yeah. it's just ninety nine designs. Yeah. It's just yeah. that, but yeah. with uh, voiceover stuff. Yeah. yeah, that's really cool. That is yeah, cool. it's a neat thing. 
That and I was really like, this cool. is stupid that I'm not just doing this. Yeah, you've got it's stupid that I'm not doing this you know, all the time. Forget about yeah. pandemic you know, quarantine just, stuff. I should you have just, like, so much equipment. I like, should just um, be doing this anyway. Yeah, yeah. just there's, randomly. There's literally a, a $1,000 microphone sitting on my desk at my house <laughs> right now. <laughs> just holding down paper. That I use to like, <laughs> oh, when I go on Night Attacks happy hour, yeah. I talk into that. Yeah, when I'm Zooming with people. Right. <laughs> because, oh, here it is. <laughs> Why not? Huh. Yeah. Yeah, that's pretty cool, man. So they just send you, like, random things and say, hey, give it your best shot, and you just throw yeah. it in there. Yeah. And then if that's... And you like, pick oh, the ones that you want to pick for. and that, that, like, that look good for you and everything. And yeah. That's pretty cool. Is there even, like, commercial work on there where they're, like, there you is. know... You get to, like, do the whole, like... SJ just sent one in last night for Carvana. Oh, cool. Oh, wow. wow. That's awesome. You should sign up for all the pharmaceutical commercial ones and then just do your auctioneer voice to get through all the side oh, yeah. effects and symptoms. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think this was on ICS the other day. We were talking about some of those, but I saw one uh, a couple of months ago that one of the side effects was unbearable pain. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my God. I don't remember what the drug was. I don't remember what it was for. Oh, you better fucking look it up. But I was like, one side effect, like unbearable pain is better than whatever this drug is for. It's better to I mean, be like death cure. The the adjective alone should right. tell you it's not. <laughs> this is not. It's a good literally medication. unbearable. Yeah, <laughs> you cannot bear this pain. Permanent unbearable pain. Right. In mental anguish. Maybe that's the idea. That like this will make whatever you have feel okay. Yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> You won't be thinking about your... That won't won't bother you at all. (laughs) You got athlete's foot? Take one of these. Because you'll just be screaming. (laughs) Oh, my God. God. Yeah. You'll scream for the first half an hour. After that, you won't scream anymore. Not because the pain is gone, but because you won't be able to physically scream (laughs) anymore. I went, did, did, was that like right at the top, or did they squeeze it in there? Kind of, it was squeezed it in. Other, okay. oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, it was like yeah. the eighth yes. thing down. I want to see uh, the guy who read that out loud in front of a mic and just yeah. watch his eyes like pop. <laughs> so this word. was a TV spot a where they just thing. like where they list the the possible side effects in small print at the oh, bottom. Oh my god. <laughs> Which is uh, which made me wonder. It honestly made me wonder. I was like, did the graphics guy just squeeze that in there? Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, oh, that would be yeah. funny. Is the, is the graphics guy just fucking with somebody? Yeah. yeah. Are they just like... <laughs> and, and no one caught it. Yeah, yeah. Nobody got it. He was like, you know what? You know what the guys over at Cialis aren't checking on? Yeah. The yeah. small print. <laughs> he did it on a dare. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, he did it. That's what I, I... I really hope that's what it was. That would be funny, yeah. Yeah. I'm getting laid uh, off tomorrow anyway, so... Yeah. <laughs> this is the end of this yeah. last day on the job. Hey, nobody knows how to take this graphic out once I put it (laughs) (laughs) in. They already cut the commercial. They can run the commercial or not. (laughs) (laughs) Throw it in there with the unbearable pain. But, you know, you might get laid. Yeah. (laughs) You gotta roll the dice, you know. Sometimes you just gotta roll the dice. Yeah. (laughs) 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 You're welcome. (laughs) Oh, my motor is so rigid. I have that effect. Oh. <laughs> the pain is unbearable. <laughs> well, I wouldn't say unbearable, but, you know, yeah. <laughs> well, uh, on that note, thank you for all of you who support our show. <laughs> uh, yeah, so we're recording this way earlier than we usually do. So this if we have true. any new uh, Therapals, uh, Therapods, Theraproducers, Theradactyls, uh, we you. didn't. Yeah, thank ah, you. And, uh, and uh, we'll catch you next week. Yep, so we're recording this one earlier, but uh, we do want to thank our bosses, the mysterious and shrouded Illuminati members of our fan club. 
Thank you, Smitty Scoop, Jake Schneider, Robert Brownie Jr. Mint, Kayla Lansbury, Elio Dare, Judy Schneider, Nathan's Hot Dog Scoop, Dr. Ben Don, and ex-officio board member Crazy Manana Scoop. And if you'd like to hear this episode uncut and unedited and enjoy our spontaneous side projects, go to patreon.com therapy, and thank you for supporting mental health. That's all the time that we have for this week's session. We want to thank our Landlord's Ice Cream Social podcast and our special guest, John, a magician in Las Vegas. <laughs> Thanks to those of you who contributed to our show today. We really appreciate it. Remember, the pot therapy is something you should not keep all to yourself. Share this episode with somebody who needs it by opening the episode's description in your podcast app and copying and pasting that link provided into your social media. Don't forget, you can find us at Facebook.com slash PodTherapy, on Twitter at PodTherapyGuys, and at Patreon.com slash Therapy. If you want to submit a question to the show, ask anonymously at PodTherapy.net or email us at PodTherapyGuys at gmail.com. I'm Nick Tanchman. I'm Jim Jobin. Thanks, and we'll see you for your appointment next week. Smaug. Faug. Daug.